Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is my good friend, Dr. Evelyn Farkas, a former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia during the Obama administration. She also leads the Farkas Global Strategies Consultancy and is a board member of the Project 2049 Institute to fully normalize relations between the United States and Taiwan. In 2019, she ran for Congress as a Democratic candidate to replace uh, Representative Nita Lowy in New York's 17th District. And I should note for our audience, last April, she wrote a Washington Post commentary, Putin is testing Biden on Ukraine, what will keep him in check, uh, which I think is worth uh, looking at. Evelyn, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our recent coverage at the Surface Navy Association's conference and trade show. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, having you on the uh, program. Uh, and unfortunately, many times when you join us, we happen to be talking about Vladimir Putin uh, and Ukraine. I commend to the audience that you joined us uh, in uh, April of last year uh, when you wrote for the Washington Post a very thoughtful uh, essay. And here we sit now nearly a year after that. Putin is trying to accomplish a lot of things, right? It's not just about asserting himself over Ukraine or pushing the United States out of Europe. You know, he's trying to change the entire security dialogue. He's testing us uh, to and increasingly evidencing uh, the, the Western alliance of having feet of, of, of clay. He's even trying to undermine uh, uh, Joe Biden, if he, if he possibly can. How do we need to understand what Putin is trying to do before we can get to what he's actually doing and how to deter him? Yeah, I mean, all of those things are objectives to help him get to his ultimate objective, which is to make sure that he can maintain his kleptocratic, autocratic regime in power. In order to do that, he believes that he has to have like-minded, autocratic, kleptocratic neighbors. And he also is very much a Russian imperialist. So he wants a sphere of influence in the former Soviet space, which includes uh, Ukraine. So he does not want a flourishing democracy in Ukraine. He wants to control Ukraine. He does not want the international community telling Ukraine it has its sovereign right to its borders or the right to pick its alliances. So this is the rub because it's a real values issue and it's a real um, clash between those countries that want to uphold the current international order and frankly, Russia, which is the only one that's obviously out there challenging the UN Charter and the rules of the road. Ultimately, this also uh, gets down to the nature of deterrence. And uh, right time and again, we have seen that when we take military force off the table, as Henry Kissinger has artfully said, right, the worst actor really takes advantage of that situation. And Putin is operating out of a Soviet-style maximalist uh, playbook, right? Uh, Kaya Kalas, uh, the Estonian prime minister, deserves credit, right, for saying this is very Soviet, very Andrei Gromyko-ish. Um, you know, our written responses have gone to the Russians. That's unsatisfying. Where are we and where are we going? Is he going to invade as many people think he will or not. And does he actually achieve his aims, even if he, or many of his aims, even if he doesn't invade? 
Right. So what what he and other Russians have said is you, the West, aren't paying attention to us and what we need. And so therefore, we're going to intimidate you with our military. We're going to threaten you. We're going to bully you until you give us what we want, which is not going to work. And President Biden has done actually all the right things. First of all, together with our allies, it seems they have agreed on a sanctions menu and they've uh, communicated to the Russians what would be on that sanctions list, um, something that is, I think, would help deter the Russians in terms of understanding the cost to them, because there will likely be sanctions that cut off any servicing of Russian debt. They likely will have blocking sanctions on the major Russian banks that you know service the government. So there are some serious sanctions in there. In addition to that, all the military deterrence that we've marshaled to, first of all, make sure that NATO allies feel protected and we're demonstrating to Putin that if he puts one toe into a NATO country, he's in trouble. Second, to help shore up the Ukrainian military and to make sure that Putin understands that it's not going to be a cakewalk if he tries to take even a piece of Ukraine. There is more that we can do. We can do certainly more in providing air defenses for Ukraine. I believe the Biden administration is actually going to likely do more to shore up NATO. And, and I would, I'm looking forward to President Biden giving a speech, which apparently, I don't know if he's decided to do it or not, but yesterday there were indications that he's considering it. I'd love him to go to the UN because this really is a global issue. It's not a transatlantic issue. There are those who say that we, we are still not uh, doing uh, enough and that the fact that Russian uh, that Russia is just increasing its true presence on the borders. Right. And it's utterly surrounded, whether or not on the uh, Belarusian Ukrainian border or the Russian Ukrainian border or, the, or uh, in, in the south. Uh, right. I mean, U Ukraine really is surrounded in a lot of ways. And Russia has said that it would use its navy as well. Do you think that he still goes in to Ukraine ultimately? I, so on January 11th, when I published my Defense One piece on the situation, I was saying it's, it's at least 50% likely he'll use force. In recent days, I've said 80%, the political, you know, asked a bunch of us experts to opine. And unfortunately, I would still put it at 80%, but I haven't completely given up on um, him backing down and choosing the diplomatic path. The reality is we're not going to know till he decides. He's going to decide either before February 4th or after February 22nd because of the Olympics in China. And um, but I will say that everything we do every day to shore up our deterrence probably makes it a little less likely. Maybe uh, I, I shouldn't say that, but because I don't really know, I still think <laughs> I still think he's more likely to strike out strike into Ukraine militarily, although I don't believe he's going to try to swallow the whole porcupine, as they put it. He'll probably take the Donbass region and maybe some territory uh, outside of Crimea to make sure there's a good, you know, secure water access for Crimea. Uh, and, and again, it's it's the corridor. So you're one of the people who doesn't think that he goes all the way to Kiev. I don't think so, because I just think that would be really risky and it would be really costly. And he may deem at this moment in time that he doesn't need to do that in order to regain or yeah, regain control over Ukraine. He could always come back and do that later uh, unless there's something I'm missing. And he thinks that he doesn't have more time. And again, I can't see into his head. 
Um, again, sadly, many people can't, even though we can uh, predict some of these uh, arcs. Um, Michael Kaufman, you know, this has been Ukraine Russia Week uh, or Russia Ukraine Week for us. We had Michael Kaufman on on, on Monday. We had Admiral Mike Rogers on uh, yesterday talking about the cyber dimensions of this, and you're joining us uh, today. Um, Michael on Monday said that he, like you, expects him to go into Ukraine. That we will sanction the living daylights out of him, and then Putin will figure out someplace else uh, to act. Where else do you think? First, do you think that's plausible? And, and how do we need to factor that into our decision making, given that he, uh, Evelyn, has not been deterred since 2008? He does right. whatever he wants to do on his timeline. Mm-hmm. He's executed a whole bunch of people in Western countries. Many of those were not deemed executions at the time, but people are now realizing like, hey, wait a minute, that could have been an assassination, right? Um, and we haven't wanted to acknowledge it. Just like there are a lot of cyber activities that are happening that we're not exposing, because if we did, we would have to act more. Ultimately, right. what is it? Where do you think he acts next? Is it in the Pacific? Um, and and how does that factor into how we need to think about this situation? Because no matter what happens, his assumption is it just won't be that bad and they'll get over it and I'll get away with it. Right. I mean, so I do expect him to try to do something to escalate the situation outside of Europe, what we call horizontal escalation. And I've pointed to Syria as a possibility, but you're right, it could be, it could be Asia, Pacific. You know, they are exercising with the Chinese. That's not necessarily any kind of escalation. But I, I, I do expect him to do something. I'm not exactly sure what it'll be. And Syria is the logical place in my mind because the US also has troops there. And um, yeah, but I, but I, I, you know, it's very hard to predict exactly. And I don't have access to the intelligence I used to have access to. Right. Alas, alas, if we could only get you back in there. Um, <laughs> l- let me ask about expanding that 20% deterrence, right? Um, we, we are not deterring Putin, right? The ruble is tanking. Sovereign debt is becoming a problem for him. We look like we might find alternative sources uh, of, of energy, ultimately. We're talking about sanctions, right? Admiral Rogers yesterday told us, hey, you really do have to target the Russian people, right? We always try to be very targeted with this, and it's the specific person. Uh, whereas, you know, I'm one of the people who's long argued, you've got a Magnitsky living daylights out of these guys. You have to sanction Putin himself. You have to make it harder for Russians to travel. What are the sorts of sanctions will it take that will, you know, which will cause global economic chaos uh, at, at a time when we're already facing inflation pressures, what are the kinds of things we need to do, the administration has to do, and the international community have to do to really slap some sense into the Russians? Because ultimately, you're actually trying to help Putin not make a mistake that <laughs> right. will be problematic for everybody. Right. I mean, look, I think uh, I talked about the banking sanctions. Those are really important. They've been under consideration for a long time. And for whatever reason, you know, successive administrations have held back. I think we should have done them a while ago. Um, We should certainly slap them on the Russians and be threatening them explicitly now. Uh, privately. Second, I think the the best thing that would work would be sectoral sanctions, but we're just not in a position to do that. I mean, I do, I have myself, you know, tweeted out, how about a Berlin airlift of LNG to, <laughs> to Europe? 
the reality is though that it's not very easy to organize we you know you have to have ships you have to have ports and you have to have the natural gas <laughs> so i i am really commend the administration though for looking into this because even mentioning it publicly could make putin and his oligarchs stop and think for a minute it's a real um oh i don't even know what the word is i mean it's 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 a real failing that the Europeans did not organize for themselves, you know, before this, uh, some way to avoid this kind of blackmail by Vladimir Putin. But sectoral sanctions on oil and gas would be, of course, the most effective. Do you think applying those sorts of sanctions, even if the United States did so unilaterally as we did with uh, Iran, can be something that is damaging or does the international community actually covet, right, as Germans do and Italians do and many others in Europe do, right? They're very reluctant to jeopardize that trade with Russia. And indeed, they're not keen on losing oligarch money that's in their midst, whether it's in through the ownership of soccer teams, sports clubs or anything else. We definitely have to, together with the Europeans, make sure we continue to sanction individuals around Vladimir Putin and the entities supporting him. Uh, that is absolutely necessary because it prevents them from traveling to Europe, their family members from doing that, from from the, you know getting access to their investments, et cetera. So I and it's and it's also a normative thing. You know, it, it's it's telling the world you have a black mark on you. You're not acceptable because you're supporting this aggressive foreign policy of Vladimir Putin. Quick word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. We talk about alliance unity, uh, Evelyn, but it's not abundantly clear that the alliance is unified. And indeed, the divisions within the alliance are actually helping Putin do his job by, by further exacerbating fissures, right? Germany will not allow uh, airplanes going to Ukraine to overfly German territory, reconnaissance aircraft or having to take the long way around. Uh, they can't use German airspace. The Germans won't allow Baltic states to export uh, old East German howitzers uh, to, to, the, to the Ukrainians. Um, we've seen Italian chief executives have a, a meeting to discuss Russo-Italian uh, industrial cooperation. That meeting was with Putin uh, and uh, three top CEOs. Um, there's a concern that France is kind of doing its own thing within an EU context and sort of making the case for European sovereignty. Um, you know, whereas the coalition of the willing is the United States, Britain, Czech Republic, Denmark, the Poles and the Balts, right? When we talk about European unity, it, do, we, do we have alliance unity really? Because ultimately in order to have alliance unity, don't you need some of the biggest nations sort of lining up and saying, hey, this is unacceptable instead of talking about a millennia of friendship between Germanic and Russian peoples. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's unfortunate that we have some differences here. We have this very young coalition government in Berlin finding its footing, you know, with no diplomatic experience whatsoever. So they're, they're, that's unfortunate. And of course, um, President Macron has also been flexing his muscles in a way that's not so transatlantic. Um, I would say that if if Putin makes the wrong move, we will see you know very strong unity in the, in the alliance and you know among EU and NATO members, including the North American members. So I'm not I'm not that worried uh, in the worst case scenario. And in the lead up, I think we're sufficiently 
united to get the message, the deterrent message across. So even if the Germans, for their own various reasons, say we won't send weapons to Ukraine, plenty of other NATO members are. So I don't think that's really a, a huge issue. I will, I did just remember what I wanted to say earlier when you were asking about, um, about sanctions and money flows and whether the, you, you were hinting at whether the Europeans would go around the sanctions. I don't think the Europeans would go around the sanctions in this case. However, the Chinese are the ones to look at and the Russians would probably turn to the Chinese to help them out. Although they have a very, you know, big um, foreign, uh, a foreign reserve that they've built up precisely for this kind of contingency, but they'll probably turn closer to China, which is frankly speaking, a double-edged sword for them because as they move into a situation where they're more dependent on China, there's danger for Russia in that. What's the danger? I mean, aren't they increasingly in league, not just with each other, but with North Korean, uh, North Koreans and Iranians? I mean, ultimately, isn't this an increasingly the, tight coalition of authoritarian norm is, and rule breakers it that is find a, common cause? It is a it is a it is a relationship that is pragmatic and transactional. They do not, and yes, they share, I guess, autocratic values. But they, but the Russians are very wary of their large Chinese neighbor, and they understand that over time China will become much stronger. That they could even have a bigger or the same size nuclear force eventually, and and they are wary of. China as a potential adversary. So certainly the military um, component of the, of, you know, the defense uh, component of the Russian government is nervous about that. So I think there are limits to their cooperation. And if we push them into Chinese arms in the short term, of course, it will, it will stymie our efforts to create pain for Russia and China. But in the long run, I think it will not be helpful to Russia. I want to ask you um, a couple of other sort of broader uh, strategic questions, but I have to follow up on this. If, you know, the president drew a lot of criticism for saying that if it was a small invasion, we would treat it differently than if it was a large invasion. Uh, there are those who interpreted that as just a thorough gaffe and a screw up on the part of the president. But the president also does have a reputation occasionally of talking his way through things. Um, and just like when he was asked twice about Taiwan, um, you know, would you fight to defend Taiwan? I don't think it was an accident when he said it. I think he's messaging to the Chinese. Was he messaging, do you think, to Putin that no. if you do something small? No. Okay. No, I think that was that was the that was a gaffe. And it was cleaned up so fast by the NSC that and, and Secretary Blinken that it tells me that no, he was not messaging. Um, do do we hit the Russians as hard if they go to Kiev and or they just reinforce themselves in Donbass? Yes, everything I hear from the administration indicates that even one more extra soldier crossing over into Ukraine is enough. Do, do we need to add cyber to this? One of the things that Mike Rogers yesterday said, which I thought was compelling, was that we, we look at terror, you know, we we're looking at this through an old fashioned lens of territory, whereas in cyber, this is now a full up situation. Right, uh, the Russians are very good at information disinformation, and I want to get get to that in just a moment. Do we need to expand what we see as causes belli with nations like Russia and China? 
that what you do in cyberspace, especially in an offensive capacity, can be as disruptive and bad, especially if you're taking down an ally's critical infrastructure? Do we need to change this definition beyond just, you know, little green men or Russian soldiers cross the line? Yeah. And if so, how do we how do we need to think about yeah. that new level of or interpretation of causes bella? I mean, I do think we need to, but the problem is that we we haven't we don't have sufficient consensus around that politically, and we've done nothing to educate our people. So, of course, I mean, when Russia took out a quarter million Ukrainians' electricity in 2015, I mean, that's that's I mean, they were already at war. But I mean, if they undertook something like that again, that would be that would be you know a problem. And so, yeah, I mean, in this context, it would mean sanctions and you know everything that we're threatening right now. So my, my view is that, yes, I think cyber actions can warrant an Article 5 reaction, right, um, in the NATO context and elsewhere certainly should, could be regarded as, as, a, as, a, as an attack, as a casus belli. But um, again, I think that there more needs to be done to educate policymakers and the public. Certainly, if you had an attack, if the Russians try to keep us out of, of getting engaged further in Europe by, by launching a cyber attack against, you know, Wall Street, the exchange, or, 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 you know, a bank, a major bank in New York, or an electric grid. I mean, that should be, that is an attack. It even has physical ramifications in the case right. of, the, of the energy attack. But I don't know that we are prepared as a country politically or again as a as a people to to take military action in response to such an attack i think what we are prepared to do is take the same kind of proportionate um you know action which again is is an attack if we did that to the russians let me uh, ask you a couple of the information and disinformation elements of this uh evelyn right is is putin winning even if he doesn't invade, because he's exposing existing fissures and divisions in NATO, right, which are making, you know, which are irritating people in the East, right, when they see Germany and Italy's behavior and France's behavior. Um, and, and more worrying, his talking points are being embraced in the United States, right? Tucker Carlson and a lot of uh, uh, folks uh, on the right of the Republican Party are mirroring and just parroting uh, the Kremlin's uh, talking points. And increasingly, we're seeing things that general officers of, of many different and important, from many different and important NATO countries, and including US folks, would privately sort of express reservations about fighting for the Baltics and the extent of NATO expansion. Whereas increasingly folks are saying, listen, you know, let's just be honest with ourselves. We're not going to fight for Ukraine any more than we should be fighting for some of these nations that should not have been in NATO. Right. And, and that extends to the Baltics. And it suggests, uh, you know, other countries that were Warsaw Pact countries. Right. Is is Putin winning by changing the nature of the discussion and exposing things that folks would have said in private, just like Donald Trump gave voice to uh, a lot of things that people thought in private and just decided, well, hell, I, you know, that may be racist, but somebody is enabling me. Right. Are we enabling potentially very dangerous conversations? And I, are we countering those conversations as effectively as we should be? 
so I would say that um, he's definitely not winning. I mean, so far we have deterred him and so far we are united and we've taken actions in concert with our NATO allies. And we have consensus even in Congress, you know, Tucker Carlson is not in Congress and the other people who are making, you know, uh, traitorous noises, <laughs> borderline traitorous noises are not in positions of power on these issues. They're the freshman um, insurrectionists. So I would say that um, he is not winning at all on this. Is he demonstrating our weaknesses and testing us? Certainly. Has he brought his agenda to the forefront um, of, you know, uh, uh, to the middle of the international table? Sure. Has he gotten the attention of the largest power in the world, which is the United States? Yes, but he has not won. And so I think it's important to, to see this through to the end. And even if he were to invade, if we were to fail at our attempt to deter him, he's not going to win. Should this mark a change in the fundamental approach that the United States has, or do you sense um, you, you have been supportive in the, uh, of the administration in this conversation that the administration gets it? Because all eyes are on, and, and where I think Secretary Blinken gets high marks for saying that the world is watching implicitly, he means by China, and we're, we are talking about Taiwan in this, in this case. Are we behaving as toughly and in as concerted and in as organized a fashion or are there lessons to be learned from this exercise as we sharpen our game against a nation that may lay low a little bit for a couple of weeks because of an Olympics? But I note to everybody, it was not long after Sochi that Vladimir Putin decided to invade Ukraine. So I would say that what the Biden administration is demonstrating is that they learned a lot of lessons from the Obama administration, where I served with them, and they are acting in a way that demonstrates that they understand that China is watching, that Iran and North Korea are watching. And they have taken really all of the actions that those of us out on the outside have recommended. There are some other things they can do. I've already mentioned them, air defense, maritime defense for the Ukrainians going to the United Nations. So, so it's not that they've exhausted all the options for beefing up our deterrence, but they have done a really good job and they and 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 again they've understood that deterrence means you threaten you threaten the action you're going to take if they step over the line it's not punishment in the obama administration we we you know by design or by default we ended up kind of falling more into the punishment category rather than actively deterring and this is an active deterrence that the biden administration has going right now and they do understand that china's watching let me ask one last uh, question. Since the dawn of the nuclear age, the focus, uh, everybody's focus has been conflict avoidance, right? And clearly for that generation, um, after having seen World War II, you wanted to do everything you could to avoid conflict, hence the Bretton Woods, uh, the, the, the whole structure we have for an international order. But that conflict avoidance is used by our adversaries uh, sometimes, knowing that we're unlikely to escalate. Do, do we need to change our posture and our thinking? Uh, obviously not to be cavalier about this, but when you're dealing with folks who are willing to use force, they're really not interested in the nuance. Putin's not interested in the nuances. So first of all, I think if you look at US history, we unfortunately are not conflict averse. <laughs> so I think a lot of people would argue with your 
Um, well, we're, we, we, we go to war against guys who are small and, and we feel that we can do it, right? We tend not to do that, uh, obviously, against the Soviet Union or other well, nuclear-armed nations. Right, right, right. So we've avoided global, you know, world wars and wars against nuclear powers, which I think is prudent. Having said that, you know, if I mean, the stakes here, in this case with Vladimir Putin, are quite high. And so that's why we need to be clear with the Russian government that what they're doing is unacceptable. I think where we draw the line and where we are willing to fight, no question, is, is in the NATO context. Evelyn, I know you've got to run. Thanks very much. You're always welcome back on the program. Uh, best of luck to you and thanks again. Thank you so much, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.